Hello, and thank you for joining us once again on the Burning Bridges with Mike Spraggle podcast. This is the more than overdue episode five. Last episode I recorded was back in October, which was uh, me making fun of uh, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. And let's just say there's been a lot of things in my plate over the past several months. I do apologize. I always want to be a much more timely individual when it comes to doing this podcast, but you can't stop life. Sometimes things happen or it's easy to get distracted. There's shiny objects you see and next thing you know, a month has gone by. So life is kind of what it is like to uh, thank anybody that has listened previously to this podcast before. Uh, all the episodes are available on Simplecast, and you can find an RSS feed that you can link to as well. Uh, use whatever app that you're using. This episode, number five, now topic of today is going to be very simple. We're going to talk classic Nintendo. It's very ironic, actually, because I did not plan this. I had this scheduled out today for this, but the day of recording of this is when they've actually announced they are no longer making the NES Classic Retro System that was released months ago, which had a collection of 30 games. I guess Nintendo does not want to make any money whatsoever by letting us have our childhood dreams in an easy, affordable package. So, Now, if you want it, you're going to have to pay ugly secondary prices out there on the market. Anywhere from, I saw on Amazon today from, well, 180 or so. Some places on eBay are already ballooning up to the $200 to $300 price range. So, if you want to relive some of the games we're talking about today, by all means, feel free to buy it now before it becomes way overpriced. Wait, did I use the word we? Why, yes, I did use the word we. I'm going to have a guest on today. Today, joining me... Longtime work colleague and friend, this is Steve. Say hi, Steve. Hi. Hey, Steve says hi. Um, before we jump into this, a few things I'd like to just plug out, just because I like giving free publicity whenever possible. First and foremost, I'd like to uh, give uh, pretty much a plug. None of these have been paid for. Is for Stones. Enjoy by 42017 IPA, which I'm drinking right now. I'm always a huge fan of Stones IPA beers. And their Enjoy By series is great. Uh, one other thing that I've been starting to listen to a lot over the past several months, and no, this is the reason why I haven't been recording, is that uh, the band called The Sword, I've been listening to them a lot lately, and they have a live album coming out in the beginning of May uh, called Greetings From. Listen to one of their songs on YouTube they have available. That is an amazing song itself. And uh, I'm looking very forward to at least another week being able to watch the Silicon Valley coming back on HBO. So those are things that I'm either looking forward to or enjoying right now. Steve, what are things you want to plug? Uh, I have nothing. Actually, Fargo. Fargo comes back next week. Yep, and I saw the first reviews for it today, the first reviews for the third season. Seem to have it in such high praise. You loaned me, of course, the first season, which I still have yet to watch. So for me, shame on me for being lazy. <laughs> Before you leave today, I'll give you True Detective Season 1 so you can watch that, so you can see what an amazing show that one is. Especially now with uh, being where they may go back and make a third season of that. So if that's the case, hey, awesome. So first and foremost, let's talk about it. We're going to talk about the history of the NES. So the Nintendo Entertainment System 
came into popularity in the mid-80s. I was probably barely 9 or 10 years old when that system came out. It was uh, very unique in many different ways in the sense that it had a multifunctional controller. Now, I know people will probably talk about Coleco having, of course, their controller where you have the overlays. But really, I think the Nintendo controller, and especially when it's a you know following system, the Super Nintendo came out, those were the controllers that helped define, I think, a lot of video games. Otherwise, most people are really used to your Atari 2600 with your single joystick with a button, which was very limited in what you can do, or using a keyboard if you had uh, any of the Apple systems or any PC systems to play games itself. Um, Steve, what was your earliest memories you've had in Nintendo? Uh, actually, that would, it would be the family's first gaming system back then i mean i believe i may have played in a one of the atari systems before that but yeah it, it was the first game my first big experience with games now i'll agree with that i never had an atari i was always that kid that i had a few uh, neighbor friends that had atari so you go over to your friend's house and the problem is is they're already sick of all the games they're like oh let's play this game oh, i don't want to play that game oh come on i i haven't gotten bored of it i want to play it Otherwise, I think technically the first gaming system I had, which is pathetic, I had a Texas Instruments computer, and it had a you hooked it up to a tape recorder and had tapes that had games that loaded the game into the limited memory of the computer by tape, and then you played like generic version of Pac-Man or other games, and it never worked because the Texas Instrument device, the memory would always just run out of space and freeze and lock up. So, really, I, I would agree. The first uh, gaming system I had was the Nintendo. I want to say that I got that around the Christmas of 87 or so. If I'm not mistaken, when we got the console, it actually wasn't for myself and my brother. It was for my dad. He made the purchase for himself. But, of course, we're the, it ended up being for us. Everything going forward was... Gaming-wise, was always purchased for us. And I think a big thing, too, about it is that Nintendo had amazing advertising campaigns around their games back then. I mean, when you watched any sort of, like, children's television, you saw commercials for Mario. You saw commercials for Zelda. I mean, you saw the commercials. They were intriguing commercials, and it really helped drive it up. And it, it started off just as a just a huge avalanche. I think once people kind of realized what the Nintendo system was about... It became something that everybody kind of had to have. And it was that classic one, too, because you had the one that came with the course, the light gun, the two controllers, and you had that yep. combo cartridge pack, which had Duck Hunt and uh, Super Mario Brothers on there. And you also had the the pack, or the or system that came with um, Rob. Yep, you had the Rob the Robot system, which was one of the earlier systems, and they ditched that one out. Later systems came with uh, trackpad, which they had track and field with. So you had where you basically ran and... By running, seriously, you looked like a manic person having a seizure when you were on that pad in order to get it to work. So, yes, but, it was also a really bad idea to wear socks while playing on that pad. Oh yeah, it was. This thing was like just a big plastic mat, and if you ran and stepped on the wrong angle, you pretty much just completely biffed and then took a dive on the floor from there. So. Do you, what was the first game that uh, you had with this system? I mean, obviously everybody started out with Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt, but what was the first right. game you had with yours? Um, ooh, it, really hard to remember because, I, I mean, let's see. You said you were about 9, 10 when you got yours? Yeah, so I, it was 97. You, so. so I was... First game. I want to say Legend of Zelda, if I remember correctly. 
Um, I think it was, and that wasn't like a request because back then it's not like we knew what the big games were going to be. It was just, I think my dad saw a shiny cartridge and decided to buy that one. Yeah, that was a unique sort of iconic cartridge. We're here. Here's a gold cartridge, which would go on to some of the other, uh, you know, versions of the game as well, too, especially uh, Ocarina of Time. I had the gold cartridge version yep. of that as well. I and had that as well. But yeah, the first game I had, I think we had the Nintendo for one year. I didn't get a actually own another game for it until Christmas the following year. But that entire year was an entire year of just renting games. Um, that's just kind of how our family was from a financial standpoint. We would just rent games, so it became the can we? How far can we get in a game in two days worth of time? And there would be games that we'd rent multiple times. There was games that we. Kind of to your point, there was a lot of games out there that you didn't know about. So, you know, you sit there and think, all right, POW, maybe this is a good game. That's kind of really a bland, bad game. But, you know, fortunately, you didn't spend $50 on it. I think the first game, though, I remember us owning as a family um, was Dragon Warrior. I remember seeing the commercials for Dragon Warrior and also seeing some uh, some of the friends uh, I had had Nintendo Power Magazine. And I remember seeing that like, wow, that looks pretty awesome. And it was a good game it was hard in many ways because you didn't know what you were doing and there was many times i had to call the nintendo power hotline and spending probably like five to ten dollars just to try to find simple solutions that really if you everybody today that complains about video games you have the internet there's no reason the internet can help bail you out when you're in a corner back then we paid just exorbitant amounts of money to just try to find answers but I also feel like there's a weird phenomenon back then. We didn't have the internet for like Legend of Zelda. Mm-hmm. Yet, somehow, not long after owning Legend of Zelda, you knew where everything was located. And that was from word of mouth from other uh, other friends. Same with the, the little trick of naming your character Zelda. So you had the second playthrough right off the bat. Or the Justin Bailey code for Metroid, which, right. you know, loaded up. I mean, you people found out things in different ways. And there's probably, you know, some people got that information because of Nintendo Power Magazine and some of that filtered secondhand. Other people right. was just experimenting. Yeah, those and those were early games, too, because Nintendo Power didn't come out until, what, Super Mario Brothers 2, because that was the, the right. covered story. Was so it's about so. 88 or so, I think, yeah. is when Nintendo Power started. But could be wrong, who knows, but... Yeah, you had, I mean, at that point, you were, Zelda was already out there. Uh, Metroid was already out there. Um, you had the Konami code. I think the better way to put it is, like, when Nintendo Power came out is when a lot of games were starting to hit their second, not only just the, you know, sequels, but you started seeing the second generation of games, and you really saw what, all right, uh, game manufacturers were able to do with those games. Right. You know, but it, I'd say this. How did the Nintendo impact your life overall? Well, I'm still playing games to this day. It's um, it's a major part of my life. I can't imagine not owning a video game console now. I don't get to play games as much as I used to, um, especially now. Like you've got the two big games that just came out: Horizon Zero Dawn and Mass Effect. Barely touched it, but I mean, I just I can't see me not playing games. And I mean, it's something I would eventually like to pass on as well. I know one of the cheesiest and corniest lines people used to use when it came to video games. Like, oh, it can really help your hand and eye coordination and solving and timing. No, it really did. That is really what old Nintendo games were, is that 
a lot of them were just very vicious games in the sense that split, you know, split second mistakes had a huge impact. And the difference between having to replay about six, seven minutes of a stage or a board all meant down to memorizing a certain pattern. And I think that was part of it. You started recognizing the patterns. You start recognizing, you know, how things are. And as a younger person, it's it's beneficial to see that hey. If A and B lead to C, well, here's how the pattern works. And I think sometimes that you don't get as much of that progressive thinking. I think sometimes when you get to video games nowadays, you got a lot more sandbox games. Say, hey, you can do whatever you want, which is good in some ways. But the problem is when you have that much freedom, too, it doesn't necessarily force you to say, hey, you still have to solve this problem right here. Right. There's a couple series nowadays that are like that, but it's not something you see as often anymore. I think the other uh, big thing that I've enjoyed about the Nintendo is that, you know, back then you could watch TV, you could watch movies. I feel that Nintendo started actually giving you a very immersive experience where you could play a video game and feel like, all right, I'm kind of part of this, you know, you're actually interacting. I think on, like, especially a lot of older Atari games, one of the biggest problems I had with some of the Atari games is that it almost felt like you were fighting against the controls sometimes. I remember just because of just how the ad, like the various axes were set up on there, you're up, down, left, and right, and everything. You play a game like Defender, and you're just sitting there in a very rugged motion. And Nintendo, they made good use of all the different axes to feel like things were intuitive. There were bad games out there that really just, you still felt like you're fighting against the controls. Right. But And it's, I mean, you bring up the NES Classic. My girlfriend has an NES Classic, so I've been messing around with that. The controller does... I don't know if it's because it's been years and years and years since I've held one of those in my hand, but it doesn't feel as good as I remember it to feel, if that makes sense. It it wasn't an ergonomical controller. That controller was just as pure box one. If you were lucky and had uh, the NES Turbo controller, which was more shaped like a Lima beam, which actually would almost go on to resemble future Nintendo controllers. I remember that one. I had that controller. Right. That actually felt at least somewhat more comfortable. Otherwise, you're right. When you have that sort of rectangular controller in your hand, you had those corners just jamming into your hands, which back then, of course, you know, my hands were a lot smaller. I'm sure right now trying to play it now with larger hands is definitely a lot more of an awkward experience. And I, I think the other last thing, too, I think that the Nintendo also had a bigger impact on it helped bring people together more. Like, I think in a lot of the Atari games, there weren't a lot of mutual two-player games outside of, like, there was uh, that combat game where there was the tanks chasing each other. But it wasn't, it didn't feel as, I think, once again, when you got a great two-player game on a Nintendo and it evolved as the Super Nintendo came out, you know, that's where, like, you know, you saw people asking to take turns. If you had four people in a room, you know, hey, all right, it's my turn to play this. And, you know, that's where... I think there was more of a sense of community built on that. And that was something Nintendo, I feel, really capitalized on all the way through the majority of their systems is that they always were about trying to make sure that, hey, you know, once like as later in the Nintendo cycle, I had the four-player adapter where there was games you could play four players on. That. And then they had the same thing available for that on the Super Nintendo. Nintendo 64 had the four ports built in. So I think that was the other secret of Nintendo. Was it was all about the togetherness of being able to play games. That was huge. So, well, anyhow, um, I think moving on right now, the next thing let's talk about, let's start talking about the games. So, in terms of games, let's talk about our favorites. What were your top five favorite NES games? 
All right, top five. Uh, we're going to go with Blaster Master, Metroid, Legend of Zelda, Super Dodgeball, and I'm going to go with DuckTales for the other one. Now, why are those your favorite games? And I, I will say out of the ones you mentioned, I have probably one of the same titles, but ironically enough, one of the other titles is kind of by the same company, same concept, but different feel. So why don't you shoot off as to why they're the best? Uh, well, Blades of Steel, because um, first off, first time you hear, like, I, like, as far as I can remember, hearing an actual voice in a game. Because you get that announcer right at the beginning that calls out Blades of Steel. That and uh, Double Dribble was another one. Oh, then. that's correct. Yes, they were both by the same yep. company, though. So, yep. uh, Blades of Steel, I just remember a lot of hours in that game with my brother and friends. That's part of the the whole, you know, two people sitting next to each other playing and then handing off the controller when somebody loses to the next The person. sense of community. I thought it was the awesomest part about Blades of Steel. And it was weird. And I never knew this. This wasn't a rule of hockey. But if you lost the fight, the loser went to the penalty box. I didn't know that was actually not a rule of hockey until like years and years <laughs> later. I always thought like when people got a fight, that was the incentive for winning the fight in Blades of Steel was that, oh, all right, woo, took that guy out, guess what, go to the penalty box. Wait a minute, they're both going to the penalty box. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it was, I don't know, it was just a lot of a lot of fun. And I, I don't want to say they looked realistic, but for the games that we had in the past, they looked a little more realistic, especially once you got to the the fight scene. Mm-hmm. Um, Super Dodgeball, kind of the same thing. It's it was just one of those community games. I same thing. Remember playing with my brother or a group of friends. Loser would hand off. It was a little over the top for a quote unquote sports game. I guess if you'd want to even want to call it that. Yeah, because the two best teams I remember, I think, were the United States and the Russians. I think both those yep. like had teams that their players were like the strongest. And I remember that like with that game, it was all about the psych out. You know, we're like, all right, I'm running. I'm gonna make it look like I'm gonna do a super throw, but then yep. you just do like a soft tap throw and just try to catch them off. So, um, Metroid and Legend of Zelda, just they're classics in my opinion. Those are like I like. Mario Brothers or Super Mario Brothers or anything that has to do with the Mario series, the main Mario series, not those weird offshoots that they like doing. But my favorites were always Metroid and Zelda. Um, Zelda, kind of first RPG experience, I guess, RPG light back then. Um, I mean, because of course you had Final Fantasy also on the system, that was a true RPG. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, well, Metroid, I mean, there's a reason. There's a genre now that's, uh, you got Metroidvania is a genre. It's the influence of Metroid and the Castlevania series. Yeah, I think Metroid, one of the best things about Metroid was its non-linear setup. I mean, it was one of the first games really to truly establish you're going to have to do a lot of backtracking. You're going to have to do a lot of walking. And it wasn't just a simple, hey, here you go. You're going to move from left to right. And you're going to keep moving right. Instead, it was like, no, you're going to kind of go all over the place. And you're going to obtain things. And at some point, you're going to have that aha moment where like, oh, I bet you if I use this here then that's what's going to fix all of that. Yeah, so. the, when I set up the NES Classic, um, the first game I jumped into was Metroid. And wow, I don't remember where anything is in that. I remember where the, uh, what was the ball called? What's the ball called? I, the, the, I'm blanking now. And if we had it in commentary where people aren't going to leave anything on Facebook. They'll grill us on this. But yeah, it was a sphere ball, basically. Yeah, you just yeah, go to the... Yeah. I feel like it has an official name. I can't think of the official name right now, but... I remember where that was because mm-hmm. it's just a quick left. But after that, it was like, mm, I don't really, I kind of, 
discovered the missiles on accident, and then I got completely lost. Mm-hmm. It, that was one of those games that homemade maps were a very crucial part of yes. the game, just yep. because, all right, here's this map, and later on, like you'll see, would see it on magazines or strategy guides, which would help out with the maps. But until that, yeah, you were drawing pretty much where you were going. So Yeah, and it's I finished Metroid on my own back then. I finished Legend of Zelda back then on my own. I don't really remember how I did it, because going back on those games, it's again, it's there's no there's no direction given. You got to discover it on your own. That was part of why it was so great, just discovering those worlds on your own. I was a cheater. The only way I ever beat Metroid was the Justin Bailey code. Right. I never truly acquired all the items or materials in there. I used that code, and that's how I beat it. So you could just easily say I didn't beat it. I just basically fast forwarded <laughs> to the end for the most part but zelda that was one game i legitimately beat but i remember that game it was just one thing i was hated about zelda was when you're in death mountain just the rocks and boulders coming down yep. that always drove me nuts as a kid now as an adult i look at something like that like why did i bug me I mean, you just <laughs> walk out of the way but you know you're talking again the reflexes of a 10 year old versus now the wisdom of a 40 you know year old <laughs> and everything there's a whole big difference there so uh, and then the last one was Blaster Master. Um, I don't know why why I love this one as much as I do. It's just, I would say it's probably my favorite NES game of all time. Um, you've got your side-scrolling aspects to it. You had the top-down. I remember it being extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, this is a game with no saves whatsoever. Mm-hmm. If you're going to finish this game, you're going to finish it in one sitting. And what was there, like eight or nine levels until you fought oh what was the boss's name it was like radioactive something or plutonium something again it's a game that's it's one of those games that you can't really find right now unless you really want to use an emulator i think there was a remake on game boy advance or one of the game boy systems and i think there's when you ask somebody what their favorite game is for nintendo there's never a right answer or wrong answer it all based on the nostalgia and where everybody's experiences were or who they were back at the time you know i mean any of the games you list i said you know no problems there i could easily say why those would be probably your top five. Oh wait i substituted something here ducktales was my other one my oh, fifth one look at that well hey i got I, six i apologize i know i cheated because i got i got two i got five <laughs> and i got like two runners up that i'm like what are in there but ducktales i remember DuckTales, also it was i feel like they took the formula from Mega Man and not to like take anything away from Mega Man 2 or 3 but they kind of perfected it with DuckTales in my opinion that and again that's just my opinion I'm sure people will argue that all over the place well, but the other thing too is DuckTales is one of the hard, hottest cartoons for probably about 2 to 3 years in that period of time yep. so they have a game come out for that that I think perfectly captured kind of the feel of everything that was going on in that you know cartoon that was I think the other driving factor on why that was such an enjoyable game for a lot of people yeah it's they've got it coming out in the collection soon they had a remaster of the game a few years ago on mm-hmm. like ps3 and xbox 360 wasn't that great in my opinion i feel like they changed too much but this saturday morning collection or whatever it's called that capcom has coming out it looks like it looks like it's the original version which that alone has sold me on the collection yeah I, there's always been like i remember they did a uh, remaster of uh, Bionic Commando at one point. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching that and playing it a little. It was okay, but it just didn't feel right. It, there, there's certain things that you can't recapture or, or shouldn't alter in 8-bit games. That's kind of their classic charm to them themselves. Yes. So, yep. um, so yeah, for my top five, uh, 
the five I'm listing, there's no specific order in which one's the number one. I don't think I can easily name a number one, but Mario 3 was uh, one of the top five I had. I remember that game consuming so much of my time just because there were so many amazing little things that game introduced that were used in so many future Mario games. The mapping system that they had on there where there was multiple different ways or routes you could go. The way the power-up system worked where you could save power-ups. Um, just some of the iconic bad guys. You had all the Koopa kids and you had Koopa at the end in the airships. I mean, it was one of those games that was just truly a fun game. And, you know, playing it a few years ago, I had it uh, repurchased it on the Wii in, their, uh, in the Wii store. And same thing. It's just one of those things that just felt good. And really... It's kind of a, if it's not broke, don't fix it formula. I mean, even if you play, let's say, the newer versions of Mario that have come out of the past couple of years, outside of the graphical updates and just minor things here and there, I mean, it's it's a time-proven formula, and I think that's why Mario 3 always holds up very yeah. well. you got the suits that were introduced in that one. You've got the overmap that's been used over and over again. Um, but admit it, the reason that you like that game is because of the wizard. The wizard. No. I had my power glove and like, yeah, this is so bad. Uh, Good old Fred Savage and his autistic little brother. Um, The second game I have up on the docket was Mega Man 3. I know a lot of people love Mega Man 2 and say that one's probably the the best of the series. I always love Mega Man 3. I feel it. It had all the proper gameplay elements down. You had the Rush Dog, which of course you know was a nice little subtle. You had the introduction of, of like uh, Mega Man's like rival in some ways. Yeah. I mean, it was. I felt that was such a great game, and once again, it was one of those games that it was like uh, there were certain aspects of it I remember that were just mind-numbingly difficult when I was younger. Like one of them, there was a board, and I can't remember which. I think I want to say it was. Flashman. It was a board where you had to descend, but as you were descending, you had to keep sliding because lasers kept fi- like filling in in the middle of the screen, and you had to keep getting to the bottom before all the lasers went all the way to the bottom. Yeah, and I, I vaguely remember that. I got the collect when they re-released the collection on uh, the console, the newer consoles. I ended up buying it on sale, and I played through them, but I just remember it was like. Yeah, this is difficult. I don't have time for the difficulty anymore. Yeah, the, the disappearing platforms and trying to, like, you know, just memorize, all right, this one appears here, so I jump here to go here to go here. I mean, just so many great gameplay elements are introduced. Uh, Zelda is on there as well, and same thing. It was an amazing di- game of discovery. I mean, there was, once again, you could wander around. You knew when you were in a place that was out of your depth because you were missing the right weapon or material to be able to easily beat the bad guys. But it didn't mean you couldn't beat the bad guys. It just meant that, all right, I'm going to have to do this the hard way and strike this guy eight times versus the two times if I had this weapon. So it definitely is one of those things that you know kind of push people along and saying, hey, try anything. You know, Burn this bush. Push this rock. Move yeah. this graveyard. And it made you realize that anything in the game could be manipulated. And in that sense right there, it kind of opened up the sense of wonder and took away some of that, you know, just rigid, well, this is all you can interact with, you know. and Right. I mean, like, yeah, you're right. It's little things of discovery. The moment you hit uh, a rock face and you realize that you hit a certain spot and it made a different noise, oh, I can drop a bomb here. Mm-hmm. Something's behind this wall. So, yeah, I think that was one of the great elements of that. You picked uh, Super Dodgeball. I took a game from another part of that company. I took River City Ransom. 
And River City Ransom is probably one of my favorite games. Actually, you know what? I'd almost put that as my number one game of all time because it was a fighting game, but it was also an RPG game where you had to build up your character stats. You had to buy a character's abilities, but it was just that simple, just moving back and forth and just fighting a whole endless horde of thugs. Right, yeah, it was... That almost made my list. Yeah, that that is definitely right there. If it's good enough for Scott Pilgrim, it's definitely good enough for me at this point. But yeah, that was a game that I still own to this day, and I just enjoy playing just because of just the little things. You know, just throwing a garbage can at a guy or making sure that you got the Grand Slam ability so you could super swing fast, uh, stick into a guy's head and everything. You know, that, that I loved about River City Ransom. And number five on the list, and six and seven could easily replace that number five. Um I would say it would be Punch-Out. I think Punch-Out was one of those games. And just to clarify, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. There was, of course, a later version when Mike Tyson had a little bit of his legal problems and the license expired. But that was a game that really, it it became how fast can you beat up a guy? And when you learn the little tricks, oh, if I do this, I get a star so I can do an uppercut. Or, hey, if I hit him when he does this, this instantly puts him to mat. It was those, once again, those moments of little discovery where... At first, a match could go on like uh, you know all three rounds, and then when you finally figured something out, like hey, I can beat this guy in like fifteen seconds. Yeah, wasn't there? Wasn't it within the last year that somebody actually discovered another tell of one of the fighters? Yep. Yeah, something that had to do with the crowd in the background, right? Like one of the guys in the crowd either like blinked or did something. Correct. I think it was uh, for Ball Bull's charge, or I want to say Mike Tyson's punch, or something along that. Yeah. I, and then that I will be completely honest. Mike Tyson's Punch Out was one game that I have never beat. Never I have never beat Mike Tyson. Tyson. Yep, I made it to Tyson, but that's as far as I can go. I, I would last half a round, maybe through his first series. But when you have that one punch power of Tyson, that would put you right to the mat. I, that was a game where if somebody said they beat Mike Tyson's Punch Out, I'd be skeptical. <laughs> and the first question asked, well, wait a second, how did you beat him? Oh, I knocked him out. All right, first off, no. Yeah, If yeah. you're beating Tyson, you're beating him by a decision. That's not a game that you're going to knock out Mike Tyson. So on the uh, two games that pretty much uh, missed the list just barely, Metal Gear and uh, Min, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, both those games from Konami, both those games, great music soundtrack and once again just good gameplay elements metal gear's entire stealth aspect of its games were just amazing and right. you know i was ecstatic in the late 90s when it was re-released for the place uh playstation one ninja turtles 2 once again it was just the right game at the right time where you had a hot franchise and being able to play those characters and also realizing the value of each character based on that except for the damn level damn you damn level that was always the level that always bugged me on ninja turtles so now metal gear that was it was it was konami but wasn't that released by quote-unquote ultra yeah konami that ultra their, that right. was their way of getting around the the quality control thing yeah, it was part of that was getting around that. I mean, it was also uh, a adapted port, of course, the PC version of the game too right. that was out yep. before then. So, Correct. so those would be, I'd say, you know, my you know top five slash seven if you're cheating, you know, favorites. Now let's uh let's go to the top five hardest, and I'd say the number one hardest game that I would put out there on the Nintendo, at least one of the hardest, is Ninja Gaiden. Yep, I would agree with that it would be mine. I don't think there is a period of time if there, I when I was a kid I didn't swear much, but if there was a game that would probably compel me to swear, that would be it because that was one of those games that 
It was just frustrating, like re-spawning of bad guys if you accidentally backtrack too far on the screen. You had a mechanic which was fixed in future Ninja Gaiden games, but for the first Ninja Gaiden game, if you were on a wall, you could jump back and forth, but you couldn't jump up unless you knew to do the trick, which was kind of like this weird semi-hiccup jump where you could kind of use it to get up oh, on platforms. Yeah. Yeah. So if you got stuck, you know, where you're like, oh, I'm right here, you had to do this while you had several different throwing stars, eagles flying at you, or other things <laughs> happening. Yeah, that's a game I never finished. In fact, I, likewise, I'm pretty, there was three, right, for the original NES. Yes, yes, I played all three, never finished any of them. Um, all rentals, of course. And when they did the remakes later on down the road, I tried those out and still could I just couldn't do it. I think if I remember, like I got to the final boss of the first Ninja Gaiden like once or twice. But I remember also too there was a part in the board where if like you didn't beat the final boss. You had to start like at this weird midway point, if I remember correctly, on the fifth board. Or there's this one part I think it was the fifth board that if you didn't, if you made it even to the end, where they started you was like a ridiculous part in the board that for you to try all over again, you just had to have the patience to do it. And God, I did not have the patience for that. So Ninja Gaiden, to me, number one toughest game. One of the second most toughest games because of just a absurdity i'm talking batshit crazy logistics of how this game was supposed to work was friday the 13th for the nintendo have you ever played it uh yes i played it never finished it um it it was impossible i mean it was a game where essentially you had six uh you know school counselor kids and you were supposed to protect all the camp goers which were all in these cabins from jason so Jason's lurking around this large map, and you're searching around for the map for like either materials or items to help you defeat him. But the game doesn't do a good job of saying, here's where to go in the direction. You could be moving, like they had paths, where if you ran like left or right, and then there was like an up, you could move up. And then it was kind of like how they inverted like everything, where all of a sudden... Your north became like your regular point of view, but then you had to recalibrate for where east, west, and south yeah, was on I there. Remember and... that. No, it was yeah. I never finished the game. I don't think I played more than more than even half an hour of the game. I feel like it was a game that if you were going to beat it, you're going to beat it by dumb luck. Yeah, because in order to beat the game, you had to find Jason's mom's sweater, and you had to find, I think, the pitchfork, which were the two items needed for that. And I'm, I remember even as an older, I remember like in my 20s, I found the game at a Funko Land for like five bucks and I bought it. I'm like, screw this. I'm older. I'm going to beat this game. <laughs> and I remember just sitting there as an older person, just swearing at the TV going, what the hell is this shit right here? Because it was impossible because Jason would pop up and start attacking one of your other counselors, which really meant you had to dodge a horrible barrage of weapons or him just pummeling at you. Or he was in the cabin where it was this weird first-person view of you fighting him. And I will say, I mean, it, it was one of those games that they you could see that they put minimal thought into. And it's like, well, we're just going to make this a game. We're in One of the themes, themes of all the hardest games of Nintendo is that they you gained extra gameplay by making it longer. Like, I think game producers are like, well, how long does it take to beat this game? Like, man, this game's so hard. It could take six to seven hours to beat, which back then was an amazing sort of feat right there. But yeah, that game, I uh, I still have great amount of hatred. I mean, it's almost as frustrating as my number three game, which is Simon's Quest. With Simon's Quest, that's Castlevania 2. Okay. That I, game I was... finished that game. Yeah. I've never finished that game, and I remember that game being just as confusing to me because 
you had got like weird random vague clues. Like you had to kneel like at a certain point in the cliff, but you had to have a certain item or you had to you do this particular action. I mean, and there's nothing to preface any of these things. Right. Well, I think so. some of these games and not all of them, but some of them, the problem back then was the translation from Japanese yep. to English. Sometimes things would get missed in translation and for us over here, it, it just it would make the game more difficult because there were not clear directions. And that's not even just in-game dialogue. Even like the instruction manuals were just equally right. crazy yep. because I remember some instruction manuals like, what what does this mean? I Or they'd have elements in the manuals that were never in the game. Yeah. I came across it a few times, like, well, why, why does it say this in the manuals? It doesn't make sense. Um, number four on my list. Now, I know many will argue this being probably one of the most difficult games of all time for Nintendo, and I won't begrudge them that. I'll, I'll admit it. It's Ghosts and Goblins. There's a lot of people that absolutely hate Ghosts and Goblins, but at least with Ghosts and Goblins, I feel like when you play about five, ten minutes of Ghosts and Goblins, you know what you're getting into. Where it's like, man, I, I am not gonna, I'm not gonna beat this game. This is a game that's just cruel and merciless, and you really had to have the time and dedication <laughs> to be able to commit yourself <laughs> to find a way to beat it and get to the end. And the problem is that even if you beat it, I think it started over again. If it you, or, did, yeah, it was to get the true ending, you had to play through it a second time. Right. You know, so that right there, that was just a giant middle finger right there. Like, yeah, just remember all this nightmare you just went through? Yeah, do it again, two times in a row. I double dog dare you. And, oh, but I I feel like the other games I previously mentioned, those games give you hope. They're frustrating games, but at least you think, man, I could probably beat this. And it just drags you to the edge until it just crushes your soul. Ghosts and Goblins just crush your soul right from the start. And if you stuck with it, hey, power to you. That's better than what I would have been. The last game I have on here, I feel, is kind of in the same vein as Ghost of Goblins, is that I have Contra if you do not use the Konami code. Yes. Let's be very clear here. With the Konami code and 30 lives, yes, I've beaten the game. If you gave me Contra and say beat it without the Konami code, I no, I don't think I will at least do it or try to attempt it. I just remember, like, the first board alone, I spent probably three lives within the probably the first, like, you know, two minutes of being on that board. So. Yeah. Now, I might be wrong here, but wasn't Contra a port from an arcade game? It was, if I'm correct, too. I mean, a lot of the games that... Um, that makes sense on the difficulty, because if it's a port from an arcade right. game, they're trying to get as many quarters into that machine as possible. You, because you had that, Gradius also was another one that benefited from the yep. Contra code in its sequel, Life Force. I mean, that was kind of just what it was with that Konami code. Konami had a lot of uh, arcades. I remember... I even remember there was like a, uh, it was an arcade system. It was a Nintendo Pick Ten system, I think, in yep. the arcades, and I think most of those were Konami games because they had Russian Attack and a few others on there. Yeah, they may have actually had Ghosts and Goblins on there as well. Right. Yeah. Just here you go. You want to <laughs> waste quarters? That's the easiest way to do it. So that that's what I got uh, headlined as my uh, top five hardest games. What about you? Well, uh, Ninja Gaiden, of course, that's on my my list as well. Um, Blaster Master is actually on my list just because it's a game that you have to you have to finish in one setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, no no save points, no codes, no battery backup on it. It was just a one shot playthrough. Um, I have I actually have Ninja Turtles, which is one of your favorite games on there. I just remember the 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 swimming levels 
The dam level was, of yeah. course, a nightmare. I remember that. Yeah. I even feel like when you got to, let's say, it was the Air Force Base, I remember it started getting really difficult. And then when you got into, like, the Terror Dome or uh, Technodrome. That I don't f- even know if I got that far because I'm pretty sure I never finished that game. The only way I remember beating Ninja Turtles was the key element was in the third board. You had to, like, build up and hoard weapons. You had, There was a all-powerful weapon, the scroll, which was like a wave beam. Okay. And what you yeah, did is you just kept going to the same building and basically you made it so that your all your turtles were loaded to the top with scrolls. So then when you got to like later levels, you didn't even use normal weapon. You just kept using the scroll to just uh, wipe out all the incoming projectiles. But yeah, I, I beat that game, but that was only because Nintendo Power told me, hey, if you want to beat the game, this is what you want to do. <laughs> um, Ghosts and Goblins is actually going to be on my list as well. Um, and it's mainly because of the screw you at the end of the first playthrough. I mean, it, it's like you said, it's difficult as is, but you finish a game and you think you're going to get a, a proper ending, and they're like, nope, you got to do that all over again. It's like running a ending. marathon, and at the end of the marathon, it's like, yeah, I bet you want this medal, right? No. <laughs> Turn around you, and run back the other way. You're going to have to get it. It's <laughs> on the opposite side where you started. <laughs> then you wonder why did the marathon go in a circle. <laughs> and the other one on my difficulty, Battletoads. All right, yeah, Battletoads is another one that yes, was also it's, it's just specifically that one level, the um, the jet bike the level. Jet bike. Yep, yeah. Mm. And that's the thing is, it's not like the game itself was an okay game, and I think it, it kind of mirroring what I was saying about Ghosts and Goblins. A lot of the games I've listed as hard games, there were games that yeah, there was points and times you had fun during those games, Correct. and it Correct. gave you hope. But then it was just like there was those moments of futility where you just realized I am never gonna just. It's not worth me spending. 20 minutes trying to get through this one part right. and especially back then being so young if i mean there's that if you keep on dying over and over and over and over and over again eventually it's like i don't want to play this game anymore right it it really just you had to commit yourself and it just grinded you down you just sat there like oh all right i'm gonna play this like five more times and if i don't do this this fifth time <laughs> and then you get done with the five times it's like no i'm gonna keep going I, yeah this is what i need to do for me to actually beat this game so um last thing i'm gonna post up when we talk about games here is there is i want to also address and bring up some of the unique or odd nintendo games that you remembered when you were growing up and ones that had like either left a memory with you or stuck out because of various reasons do you have any of those in your mind or weird odd games? Uh, yes. Uh, oh, what is uh, Adventures of Lolo? Is I that me- what it was? I remember Adventures yes. of Lolo. Yeah. And not only like, that was a weird game, but if I'm not mistaken, there were two or three in the, at least two in that series, probably three. And I'm there was. pretty sure I played all three of them. It was just a weird concept of a game. It was a lot of puzzle solving, but. I don't know. It it was very not American. <laughs> no, that's put it. I, I think Nintendo did have a huge genre of games, which were kind of like trouble solving games, which weren't were kind of like puzzle games. Like one thing I'll counter with what you're saying about uh, Adventures of Lolo and a game that you had to kind of figure your way through. Um, these two games are ports off of a computer, and it's Shadowgate and Deja Vu. And these were point and click okay. games where you. It's kind of awkward using the Nintendo controller, but Shadowgate was the first one I remember playing. And what it was is that you're trying to investigate like this like castle and trying to find this you know wizard that's threatening everything. So 
in the unique gameplay aspects where you had to find torches because your torches eventually went out. And if the torch went out, you died. And you could click on things and you could find things like keys or, hey, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, maybe if I put it in here and there was trap doors if you did the wrong decision or it was an amazingly unique game, which was problem solving. A few years later uh, from the same company, there was a game called Deja Vu where you were a, a detective in like the 40s and 50s that didn't have your memory. And you were poisoned. And essentially the game is you trying to recall what happened and trying to re recollect, you know, what you did and trying to find an antidote for the poison, which is the first part of it. But the other part of it, too, then is also then trying to, you know, solve the crime, you know, that went on in the game itself. Both amazingly unique games. And I've found uh, I've found both games on uh, Nintendo emulators before and I've tried playing okay. them recently. And there's still amazingly interesting games to try to play through and I would strongly recommend everybody give those at least a try if you're looking for something unique um they, it's it's definitely awkward it almost feels like you know your older definitely like older PC games where like you know you have to kind of you know click around to try to figure out you know what you can interact and what you can't but I, I enjoyed them so those are a couple games what else um you remember out of old Nintendo games that were kind of unique and weird unique I don't know if I would call it unique or weird but I guess it was because of what the game was. Goonies 2. Mm-hmm. Goonies 2. As a kid growing up, huge fan of the Goonies. And then, and then there was, oh, there's a Goonies 2. This is going to be awesome. Hey, uh, how do you feel is, about saving a mermaid? Yeah. What is going on here? I'm using a yo-yo to attack the Fratellis. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that was another one I remember, too. I, I remember renting Goonies, too, and I remember reading through the manuals. And once again, the manuals suffer from the same uh, Japanese to English garbled right. thing. And I'm like, what? A mermaid? Uh, what? Who, what? Now, was that like a legit... In Japan, was that Goonies, too? Or was that a different game? And then they changed up the sprites for America. I can't really remember on that one. Uh I guess in many ways, it one of the games I have noted here that's kind of similar to that where it, it may have been, but it may have been a different game. They say, well, the Goonies are hot. What are we going to do? Well, uh, just we'll put the Goonies in there. Mario 2 is a lot like that too, where when you play Mario 2 compared to Mario 1, like Mario 2 is kind of like the bastard son of the Mario family. Well, it is because it's not a Mario game in Japan. Well, it is it though. Is. It but is it and it isn't because it was supposed to be what is it Poyo Poyo or some, yeah something like that. It was yeah. A, yeah it was designed as a game, but that game was originally designed as to be a vehicle for Mario. But then they were going to give it to a different franchise. But the problem was is that when uh, they made the actual uh, Super Mario Two that they were intending to release in the United States, which eventually became the Lost Levels right. in later games, yeah. they thought the difficulty was too hard and would frustrate people. So instead, they just transposed the Mario characters into the Right. And really, it's interesting they did that because I, I like actually Mario 2 as a game. It's one of those games that people sometimes can rag on because it it's not a traditional Mario game. But you also think about what gameplay elements were taken from, you know, uh, that. And as an example, you would not have Babams without, of course, Mario 2. Right. That's where um, they deb you know, debuted in. Same with, uh, was it Birdo? Yep, Birdo was in there as well. Be common thing if you ever played any Mario Kart or any Mario sport game where they feel that hey we need characters but yeah it was it was definitely a very different game also interesting when you get to the end of the game <laughs> here's a three decade spoiler but it was the game never happened Mario was just dreaming right, it yes yep 
Basically, Mario dreamed up the entire thing, so you were just controlling Mario's dream. But I thought that was kind of a unique thing. And when Mario 3 came out, everybody heralded it as being a return to the series itself. But yeah, I, I didn't think Mario 2 was a bad game. It was definitely a very different game. So Oh, yes, extremely different. And it was, like, for us over here, it just seemed like Nintendo liked to change things up a little bit with some of their sequels because you had Legend of Zelda 2, which... Didn't even come close to what Legend of Zelda, the original, was like. Zelda 2, I almost had, at least as probably, like, at least in the top 10 hardest Nintendo games. And that was the same reason why, because there was just, once again, no clear sense of direction and bad translation. You had to kind of fight your way through to figure out, well, where the hell am I supposed to be going now? And I think when you got to, like, that entire end level with the Shadow Link and everything, that was just a frustrating duel to begin with, so... Um, one of the last games I have in terms of unique and odd Nintendo games. It's another uh, computer translation, but Maniac Mansion, I know, has a huge following. For anybody that's ever had a computer, my first exposure of it was through the Nintendo. And once again, that was another one of those unique, once again, you could see what you could interact with. And I think I kind of had a huge eff- affection towards any games back then that sat there and said hey play with your environment see what you can do and try to find a way to solve the problem and those those were the kind of problem solving games i think i really enjoyed is that the game that influenced the resident evil series uh in some ways it did i mean maniac mansion it it was one of those games i mean i take it you never played it or no no i never played it all right Yeah. yeah it was an interesting game where you had six characters each character had a special thing that they could do so you're going through the mansion. It's like, well, who can solve or fix this aspect of the problem? Oh, I need this character because this character is a musician. So this that musician can play the piano. Or, hey, this character here is a scientist. He can, you know, or a nerd, which equals scientist, I guess, <laughs> and back then. But it, it was a very unique game in that sense where, yeah, they were, you're in a mansion and, you know, the wrong decisions, you know, you triggered the wrong trip, you know, wires or pratfalls and everything else. And it all went all over the place. So... Yeah, I, I think those were definitely some games that, uh, you know, stuck out in terms of uniqueness. So moving on, I think the last thing kind of a talk through on this podcast is talking about gaming today compared to gaming back then. I mean, I guess one of the best things to address is what's the, the big difference between games today and games of the past? Uh, well, games today in not every situation, but some certain or some situations are almost like a movie production you've got actors you've got directors like actual like directors you've got a gigantic script i i think that's one of the things that nintendo didn't do as much as it's uh you know sequel to super nintendo did the super nintendo had a lot of games which I think because they had the memory and the resources, they were able to tell stories. You know, people talk about, you know, games, especially like in the Squaresoft line, such as Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy yep. 3 or 6, depending on how you want to be a nerd about it, in Final Fantasy 2. You had a bunch of games like that where you could now tell a narrative. I mean, even the Zelda game, there was a narrative of what was going on and helped explain the motivations of your characters versus in the Nintendo days. You were the character pretty much in yep. You know, like, well, I'm going to go do this. And you're kind of just that cipher, if you will, for, you know, hey, I'm going to fill in for this character and whatever motivations they have. Well, it just coincides with my bloodlust of just wanting to kill a bunch of things. So, yeah. Uh, Another big difference I would say is, and not, again, not every situation, but difficulty. Mm -hmm. 
you don't nowadays most games you're going to have your choice of difficulty if you want to play it through easy you can go up to an extremely difficult situation of course you have some of those ones that are heavily influenced by the older games like the soul series bloodborne um i would say there were some old nintendo games that had difficulty i think one of the bigger differences really is that it is i feel it is much much harder to fail at a game in today's atmosphere than what it was versus back then and what i mean by that is that the way that the save system has been now introduced in terms of saves auto saves bait you know just you know points of progress that things are saved and i i understand why it was a greater necessity for a lot of today's games because kind of as you said games nowadays have become almost interactive movies like one game i'll point out to um came out several years ago was uh Metal Gear Solid 4. You had it where you had like a 40-minute like cutscene that was in there. And, you know, they had a lot of cutscenes and there were just long, lengthy periods of exposition and kind of took away from some of the action. And I think that's why you had a lot of the autosaves that are built in there because, all right, I'm not going to sit through this again, so you better have it saved yeah. up to this certain point. I think when you got the games back then... Games, I mean, listing some of the games we list as being some of the most difficult games out there, that's kind of just what I think is the bigger thing is that, like, you play Grand Theft Auto, all right? Guess what? I uh, I died. All right. Well, what happens? It just right. reloads yeah. for my last save. And versus, let's say, if you got... Well, kill- not Grand Theft Auto. You're going to wake up in a hospital. And all right. <laughs> Sorry, you're going to wake up in a hospital. You're going to lose a little bit of your money. But right, yeah. You, I know what you mean. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, with Nintendo, those games, like if you died, you either had to start all the way at the beginning of a board, or if it was a game like the early RPGs and you didn't save, man, you had to sit there and think, when was the last time I saved? And you realize you haven't saved in like about like an hour, and one hour's worth of progress sometimes, especially if you got lucky or got certain things achieved that normally you're not, weren't too confident about. You know, I... I know there's that whole aspect of, you know, let's rag on millennials because they got to make everything nice and simple and easy <laughs> and accessible for them. But I, I think that really the play through the old Nintendo age of, you know, the classic Nintendo, that, that hardened you up. If you were going to become good at something, you had to sit there and you had to push your way through it. Yeah. And, you know, if you decided to give up, all right, you gave up. But, you know, compared to gaming today, like right now, a few different games that I'm playing right now, as an example, like, uh, you know, Fallout 4, I was playing just, you know, a few weeks back. Auto save system. If I exit a building, it automatically saves. And mm-hmm. I walk in and I can save. I can choose when I can save. And really, it's one of those situations that, in some ways, I don't want to say it takes away the stakes, but it does make it one of those things that, you know, like, oh, well, I died. Whereas back then, if you died, it was a much, much bigger ordeal, I feel, versus, right. or didn't. Not using death is always being what happens in the game, but if you failed at something. And there are... Yeah, but when you failed back then, you learned a lesson. And the next time you went to that spot, you you probably were going to fail at least one more time. <laughs> or a but, dozen. Yeah, yeah, but there, there are games like that still. Again, if if you're looking for that experience, you can just go with the Soul series. Mm-hmm. Only the Dark Souls, Bloodborne. Um, they've got a save system, but there's a punishing side to the save system in those games. If you want to save everything, the world's going to reset. So anything that you've killed already, with the exception of bosses, will will be there again. So you're going to have to go through all that. 
Yeah, I think the other thing that also changes a lot of games today compared to what it was like, you know, back 30 plus years ago is that like 30 years, you know, now there's not as much of a brutal learning curve. Like almost any game you play now, you always have that kind of throwaway tutorial level in a lot of ways where it's like, oh, hi, I'm this character. Hey, so-and-so, why don't you come with me? You can help me with this. By the way, did you know that if you swang your sword like this, you can actually do, do this? Whereas back then, you were kind of just thrust in and were like, well, things are coming for me. I'm going to just start jamming on buttons and see where it goes from there. So Yeah, and again, you can still see that nowadays. But you don't really see that in the big in the big titles. Um, you'll see it in a lot of the indie stuff, quote-unquote indie stuff. In fact, a lot of the quote-unquote indie stuff looks like games back then. You've got your Shovel Knight, Axiom Verge, those types of games. I will say some of the more recent fun gaming experiences I've had. I mean, I have both a PlayStation 4 as well as an Xbox One, and I have memberships with both. So both of them have Gamers of Gold with Xbox, and you, of course, have the PSN you know, Plus where you get free games mm-hmm. from both systems. And it's been a lot of those, let's say, smaller indie titles that they tend to always have one or two of those give away that, you know, I sit there like, huh, that's kind of an interesting, charming game. Like, you know, I was... Months ago, I was bored and like, oh, I'm going to download Guacamelee. And, you know, yes. you sit yep. there and play a game like that. And, and it feels like you're playing the old Nintendo games yeah, that's, on there. That's and, a Metroidvania-style game there. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, there are, I think there are, those games do still exist from the Nintendo era. And I think one thing that I, I bring into it is that there's a beauty and simplicity. I think the indie game developers that kind of embrace and harness a lot of that feel and tradition of what it was like to be a gamer... That's where you find that now is in a lot of the indie games. And there is a beauty and simplicity, I think, when you have games. I think yeah. some games, there's some games where like the way that the game mechanics, you have the freedom to do so many different things, but to in order to achieve or do those things is not intuitive in many ways. Like, like and maybe it's just me. Like, I'll use an example. Like, uh, Skyrim. I like Skyrim. And if I ever play Skyrim, the characters I always play or, you know, stealthy archers or assassins or, you know, swordsmen. The one thing I never do much when I play Skyrim is I never play as a, um, as a mage or a uh, magician yes. wizard type. And the reason why is because it doesn't feel intuitive to me that, all right, um, I need to cast this, this, this. And all of a sudden we're being like a guy with an archer, just a simple, hey, I'm just going to shoot an arrow or swing a sword it gets a lot more complex. And now's where I get the criticism. Like, well, if you're going to play a game like Skyrim, why don't you just play it on a computer? Then you can just have it all macroed on there. And then everything's like, listen, that's great. But we're talking about console gaming and this, you know, I think that's one of the things is that I find that if there's certain options available in certain games, sometimes I find myself gravitating towards the path of least resistance, you know, like even like Borderlands as an example, I love playing the Borderlands series. The one guy I never could get into playing with Borderlands, though, is I could never get into playing with Brick. And the reason why is because he was a tank-style character that I had to play in a certain way. And for me, yeah, it just... Yeah, but if you got the right gear for Brick, the game became very, very broken. Very broken. Uh, what was the build? The Master Blaster build or whatever it is? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a very broken build. But Brick was added very late into the game. It was just supposed to be three of the Vault yeah. Hunters. Well, I think that's that's I think a good point you bring up in games today versus uh, games back then is that games today, and it would happen I think back then as well. But today, games do get broken a lot more easy. I think there's people that find millions of ways. Like, hey, if I 
put this insane combination together. I've just outsmarted the developer and found a way to achieve this. Right. Now, there were sometimes ways in the old Nintendo games that were because of glitches that you realized you could exploit a glitch. Right. But nowadays, that can get patched out. Right. See, that was another difference between back then and now is a game back then, when, when it was released, it had to be not perfect, but it, it couldn't be broken. If it was broken, that's it, that would hurt the gaming company. Nowadays, games are literally released broken, and then they just patched it down the road. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's a single Bethesda game I've ever bought that's never had an issue oh, with yeah. it that's needed to be fixed. And... As a Sony guy, that was great when uh, what was it when Skyrim came out for the PS3, and we there had there was that big um, the the save problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that, that's a bigger difference. And I think, though, kind of the other weird alternative difference, too, is this, is that I guess what how, what's the length of the gaming experience you get? Like, I'll use an example. Like, uh, Battlefield 4 came out years ago. People complained because they said, well, the single-player campaign is only about six or seven hours long. Now, granted, a game like that, your entire focus is going to be, hey, it's all about the multiplayer. Yeah. It's about, yeah. hey, you're going to be playing online versus other people. But there's those other people that do like that single-player experience where it's a little bit of a narrative. Now, if you had a Nintendo game back in the day that gave you seven hours of gameplay, that was an amazingly epic game, or you were getting a game that was like a role-playing game that was able to do that. So I think... Part of it, too, when you take a look at it, there's a big difference in how games are manufactured and what is now considered an actual gameplay experience as well as a replay experience versus anything else from back then. Right, right. I, like, for me, nowadays, I can't I can't really get into open-world games because I just... I get distracted by everything. There's usually way too many things going on. That's why I gravitate towards more the the just... Either a multiplayer experience where it's something like Battlefield. Battlefield 4, I can't even remember how many hours I put into that game. But it was a lot. Well over 100 hours into that game. Um, But for me, it's like the Naughty Dog game. So the Uncharted series, The um, Last of Us. That that single player experience where it's pretty... It's it's pretty focused. You got a storyline going on there. It's A to B. I don't mind that. I know that's not for everybody. Some people like the open world game. Like... I'm play, playing Horizon Zero Dawn right now, but there's so much going on that it's... I know I've barely even scratched the surface and I've put like 12, 15 hours into the game already. Yeah, I mean, I I remember the old days, at least with the Nintendo, I'd say the average time of length of enjoyment you could get out of a game is about, at worst, or longest, I wouldn't say at worst, at longest length, maybe four to five hours. You didn't have many Nintendo games that yeah. went over that length of time. Especially you know, a lot of the you know basic games you had, and not it wasn't until that they started introducing more of the uh, password systems or battery save systems into some of the cartridges that you know you realize the experience went a bit longer even. And you know when you take a look at today's games, I think the difference is today's games. Sometimes I feel one of the greatest strengths of today's games can also be one of its greatest faults. And what I mean by that is that you have so many games that deliver such an amazing narrative. Now, you have games that are almost the equivalent of watching, let's say, several movies at this point based mm-hmm. on what stories and everything's in there. But sometimes therein lies the problem is that sometimes you have so much story and so much going on that sometimes... 
you almost lose track of some things, like other things that are going on. Like the best way to explain it is this, going back to Skyrim. I love the game, but there's also a lot of times you have those side quests that you decide to abandon and like, I'm not going to do this. And you revisit it a long time later. And then it's like, well, what the hell is going on? I lost yeah. track. And yep. you have ways to retrack it. But I mean, yeah, you have, I think that's always the biggest trick is that when you have a lot of moving pieces, that's always going to be the biggest trick right there is that, you know, so many moving pieces, it's easy to easier to get lost or confused and where things are. Now, I'm not saying that the old Nintendo didn't have that either. Like if, I were to play, let's say, Final Fantasy One on the original Nintendo, and then stop playing it, and then try revisiting it months later. I would probably have that same thing of what point am right. I at right now? Yep. Because that was a game that didn't tell you what you had to do next. Like now, all these games have it. Like, all right, here's your current mission, and here's where your objective was. Back then, it's like, um, all right, I I can't remember what I did, so I'm gonna have to go town to town at this point. I'm gonna have to start talking to everybody and trying to like find out where I'm supposed to go and. I think that's one of the other, you know, differences is just, you know, how games have evolved and maybe gotten better to help remind you, but then again, have they become too needlessly long, unfortunately. I going back to what I was saying, I think there's a beauty of the simplicity that you have in some games. Right. And I mean one of the most successful games in recent history is very simple. And it borrows it doesn't totally, but it borrows looks from those older games. Minecraft, mm-hmm. very simple design. Um, it's it's a sandbox game, but it's it's a game that I put a lot of hours into, and it's a game that I've bought multiple copies of for different. I had it on PS3, I had it on PS4, I've got it on my Vita. I have the PC version of it because it's the only game my PC can play, <laughs> and just barely. Yeah. I... There's, I, as I said, I think there's a thing in simplicity, like the more accessible. And I think that's also one of the byproducts, too, of mobile or cellular phone gaming as well, too, that have also hugely impacted things. I mean, yeah, you look at now how the games are made to be you know, played on smartphones and how that's impacted. And I think maybe in itself, it's created its own genre in some ways where yeah. hey, if you're looking just for a simple game to play while you're sitting on a bus or you're on an airplane or you're waiting for your tires to get changed at you know, a service center. Well, here's a game you can just sit away and play at without putting too much thought at into and just going back into whenever you want. Yeah, and, but it, I, I feel like mobile games did add something to gaming that I'm not the big fan. And microtransactions. Know, microtransactions, yes. Yes, microtransactions. Like, not every game needs to have microtransactions in it. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, there are games that I have supported with microtransactions, but it's games like Overwatch... I've put so many hours in Overwatch. Every time there's a new event, I'll throw $10 in just to get the loot packs just for the new skins. In the chance like the new skins. If I don't get in that $10, I don't buy any extra. That's just it. I'll just spend the $10. Well, and I'm going to say Overwatch is also unique too in the sense that right now, Overwatch does not charge for any of the things that they have unless you absolutely right. need to. I mean, right. hey, you want a new character? I think the bigger problem with games today is that, hey, all right, we got this new character. Here's a character pack. It's now $15. Right. And Another game that's out there right now that I've put a lot of hours into in the last couple of months is Titanfall 2. It's the same practice where it's just like Overwatch. Everything that's coming out on that is free. Mm-hmm. All the maps are free. Um, 
all the new game modes are free, the weapons are free. The only thing that is they charge for is cosmetic stuff, mm-hmm. which I've thrown a couple dollars to those guys too, just because well, I, I love the game. I put so many hours into the game already. I got more than my money's worth because when I bought it, I bought it. It was on sale. And it, it's a huge about phase too when you look at like things uh, along the lines of like how Bungie used to do things with Halo because you never played really much if any of the Halo series because you never had much. Right. Yep. But I mean with Halo, here you go, a new map packs, a map packs being released. So you'd spend money for the map packs and everything and that was the big thing that I was charged. Now, you look at what Bungie's doing right now and you have to ask yourself, is that because of... You know, Bungie changing their mind, or was that because Microsoft said, "Nope, we want to make extra money, so this is what you have to do." And so, yeah, that's that's a bigger difference that you see in games. I think the one other thing I've seen in games too, that's kind of a weird phenomenon, and it's almost become a genre upon itself, is the speed run, and you you see it nowadays. If you go on to YouTube and type in yep. speed run, I mean, or even Twitch. Yeah, YouTube, Twitch, any video platform, you'll see like, hey, I beat Mario Brothers in like two minutes. I beat this game in the X amount of minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's become this weird thing where people do it both classic games as well as they're doing it with new games as well, too. And I I just, I don't get what the point of it is. I mean, it's it's one of those things where, hey, I just speed run through Mario Brothers and showed you can, or Mario Brothers 3 and shown you can beat it in, let's say, 15 minutes. Yeah. Hey, that's great. You found a way to do that, but is it fun though? You know, and it's it's one of those things that it's the same type of person. It's like, well, I got every gamer gamer achievement on a game. All right, what the hell's that done for you? Right. Yeah, I'm I'm not one of those guys that chases those because um, it's trophies on PlayStation, and I feel like the only platinum that I ever ever chased was for Borderlands Two, and it was just because I was so far into the game and I had. I I did three complete playthroughs on all characters except for Axton. And it was just like, well, I've done this much in the game. I might as well go for that platinum at this point because it's just a few little, like, two or three trophies left for me to get. Um, I've got a lot of platinums, but they're, like, Telltale games, which they pretty much just give you a platinum for finishing the game. Yeah, the whole trophy system as well as, I guess, how people consider achievements or... I guess even in the sense of, well, what what makes and constitutes a gamer? For some people, like, well, you're not a gamer unless, you know, you've gotten all these trophies or you've done this or done this, done this. Back then, we were just happy that, hey, I I beat the game. And some games were maybe easier to beat. Other games, you know, it was one of those things that there was many times, I remember as a kid, that self-accomplishment, a feeling of self-accomplishment where, oh, I can just relax. I finally beat the game. And you watch the ending credits and... Back then, the ending credits weren't anything special. Sometimes you got like a little interesting narrative. Sometimes right. it was just yep. a game over, and then it just went back to the title screen itself. But you know, they are so long nowadays. Getting right. credits because you've got studios all over the world that they got to be credited. Right, you have so many different things you have to credits. You mean there's some like you know you'll see some uh, you know end of games where already right, here's like three songs we're licensing just to help fill the time and gap right. for that. But it's not I've. If I'm not mistaken, there's a few games that actually give you a trophy or achievement just for finishing the credits. <laughs> Which, I mean, in all honesty, it's you get to see the names of all the people that put in all their hard work for right. the game. But but still, you don't have to incentivize, incentivize me watching the credits. Usually, I'm just going to let the credits run anyways. Right. 
So yeah, I, it's, I think that's the other thing is like, you know, the things that people are doing with games now versus what you did back then. Back then, I'm not saying people don't play games to have fun now, but I'm saying that you get weirder, different subgroups now of people. Right. Yeah. And maybe the same thing was true is that maybe those subgroups have existed back then and they don't now, but you never knew about them because you didn't have the community, which... I guess if I'm going to bring up one last point before we wrap this up, I think the biggest difference between gaming now and then is that the sense of community that in today's day, and I've already touched on a few things, is the way the internet has changed games. Because yes. going back to what I mentioned earlier, if you didn't know what you were doing, you either got yourself you know, a subscription to Nintendo Power and those Nintendo Power issues, sometimes if you're lucky, would cover the thing that you were hoping it would answer. There was uh, books that were fledgling at the time, like uh, Electronic Games Monthly that you know came out, which would yep. also have tips on there. Um, you had the Nintendo Power Hotline that you would call and spend 10, 5 to $10 trying to help have a guy. And the, the funny thing is, is that most of the people in Nintendo Power Hotline didn't know any of the answers either. They had themselves basically three-ring binder books, which yep. basically they opened up and they had all the map diagrams or answers and they would just thumb through there and you know just like some sort of amateur but the internet changed truly everything and how things and how you play a game like nowadays if you run into a wall in a game just only 15 minutes into the game some people actually don't even play the game some people i know will actually just buy the strategy guide read the strategy guide first because like oh i don't want to miss anything in my first run through i want to make sure i get everything or play the game note to note with the strategy guide just to make sure yeah. they don't miss a single the strategy thing. Guide. That's the thing that I don't understand nowadays is how people buy strategy guides. I mean, yes, maybe somebody likes to collect them if it's like a collector's edition of the strategy guide. But just buying the strategy guide, I don't get. Because there's the internet. Mm-hmm. Like... Here. In my hand is my phone. This is my strategy guide. I will turn to my bookshelf here. I do have some strategy guides. Right, I, I do. That. The ones I have, though, like... And but they're RPGs. They're RPG ones. So, as an example, you'll see the most amount of strategy guides I have are the Bethesda ones. Yeah. Uh, just because of a lot of those... There's a lot of little and Easter eggs sense. and yes. things. You'll see one of the oldest strategy guides I have on there. Hey, that's Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, which really, you kind of need... Oh, wow, a, yeah. You oh, can, yeah. That is an old, old, old strategy guide. But that was also one of those games, too, that you kind of needed to have, like, a good sense of, all right, uh, you have the day that repeats itself every three days, and you have to figure out where to go and do. Right. And Yeah, but, when I mean, when that came out, Internet was just, that was still dial-up at that point in time, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, Yeah, because I think that came out around 90, was it 99 or 2000? Or? Yeah, somewhere around there. But, yeah, the Internet has really changed. Like, now, like, it's interesting because when you go on the Internet and you try looking up tips on old NES games, you know, it's it's amazing, like, the things that are there that you didn't know were there to begin with. But, you know, that was part of the learning experience back then was is you play the game and you'd find out a secret that's great and it became a thing of lore in many different ways. Now... The internet's changed almost entirely how you play. Matter of fact, to the point where, here, guess what? You're going to download this app, and this app will interact with the game that you bought, so that way it can help you play it better. You know, I mean, it's... it's yeah, I've it's, got an app running right now for, for Mass Effect. So, mm-hmm. I've got squads out doing things right now. 
Now, for some, it's like, well, it's an enhanced experience when you buy apps because it does all these extra things there. But, you know, it's it's also the other aspect of it, too, is that, you know, is how much is too much? You know, sometimes wouldn't it be great just to sit there and play a game? But it's become an entire industry where nowadays, if you're going to buy a game, especially if you go to a place like GameStop, well, you might want to also pre-order the strategy guide, too, because if you pre-order the strategy guide, you get $5 off and blah, blah, blah. Guess right. what? You're going to yeah. learn all of this garbage in the process, too. And, it, and, you know, they've packed the game so full of things that today's modern gamer, a lot of them think, well, I need to have the strategy guide because by having that, you know, I want to make sure I don't miss out on anything. Right. I don't think I could ever do that, though. I don't think I can... Like, m- all games, I want to go and just clean. Like, I'll watch trailers and stuff, and maybe early gameplay footage, depending on the studio that the game is from. Because uh, there's a couple of them that I just want to go and clean, not know a single thing. Nintendo, when you had a subscription to Nintendo Power, they did this for a one-year period of time, where they had as uh, filler issues in between their bi-monthly issues... They had specific strategy guides. They had. There was actually some of the probably the first official strategy guides made. And I remember I had them. They had one for Super Mario 3. Uh, they had one for Ninja Gaiden 2. And I had one for Final Fantasy as well. Now, I would say out of those three different games there, the Ninja Gaiden one didn't really matter or help as much. The Final Fantasy one was downright crucial. I mean, that was, yeah. that was a game that by having that strategy guide made all the world a difference in being able to know where things were or... Also, you know, how to get to where you need to go. Mario, ironically enough, used that strategy guide enough because when you had, like, the match games, it told you all the patterns of the match games to get all the power-ups. It taught me the valuable secrets. Like, if you always want to get a star when you're running, they hit the box at the end, you have to jump at a 45-degree angle, and it'll always be a star. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't even know that. Yeah, if, you, if you're ever finishing any board on Mario, run full speed and jump at a 45-degree angle and hit the box and it'll to make it a star. But, I mean, you know, though that was, I think, where the start of things were. Is like, these are neat little things, but also was at a point in time in Nintendo's time where their games were getting more complex, yeah. you know, versus what they were. Yeah, you really saw that at the end of the, end of the console's lifespan. I mean, but that's with any console. Towards the end is when you really see them starting to use the power of the console. Right. It, it, the weird thing about games is you look at launch titles. Like you look at Nintendo's launch titles. It was Super Mario Brothers. Um, I, they had Metro. Duck Hunt. Metro, yeah, Duck Hunt. Uh, you have Hogan's Alley. Yep, Hogan's Alley. There was about three or four others. Like you had Donkey Kong Jr., Donkey Kong Math, and others. It was really within that same year when you started seeing the titles like Metroid, Zelda, um, Punch-Out, those come out. You saw that, hey, all right, this is it's not the initial stuff that makes the difference. It's all where all the second stuff is. And yeah. That's what's always interesting is whenever you hear about a new game system announced and everybody's like, oh, what's the launch titles? Well, what's it going to matter? Because most of the launch titles are going to suck horribly to begin with. I mean... You yeah, maybe you maybe you have that your new console with a new Zelda game, right? Well, unless yeah, right. Unless you do have, of course, you but know, have nothing else in the lineup. Well, I think that's what Nintendo's always done is like they realize we need to have no matter what one amazing A list title with our launch, and then after that, you know, we'll figure out the rest from there. I I think with Microsoft, they never really had that really awesome launch title on any other no, systems. No, they haven't. I feel like they've been betting on the hardware. Right. Up, well, the last gen kind of hurt them a little bit on that. that Even aspect. with... And I'm a little... I don't... Like the Scorpio thing. We'll see when E3 rolls around how that looks, but 
still not sold on the console. Right. And same thing, you know, when you have Sony. I mean, Sony, I think, remember out of the original launch titles, it was like Twisted Metal that was maybe kind of okay. And Yeah, you know, uh, the original PlayStation. Right. Yeah. PS2, I can't remember any of the launch titles. PS3, I can't remember. PS3 and, didn't, I, if I'm not, they didn't have any great launch titles. No. And even, like, going back to, like, Sega as an example. Like, I was one of those saps that bought the Sega Saturn. And that Saturn, I remember basically your main launch title you bought was a, a very weak version of Virtual Fighter. <laughs> and then outside of that, like, well, here's some other games and maybe you'll enjoy those. But, but yeah, it's, it's amazing when you look back at the original Nintendo launch titles. And, yeah, Mario Brothers was really the capstone of that where it captured the Imagine Everything and held things over until you got all of their next titles in the play. But yeah, when you were looking at some of the titles that are being put out near the end of, you know, Nintendo's run. Yeah. I mean, there were so many good games on that system, but ultimately Nintendo just kind of hurt themselves with that system as well, with all the restrictions that they put on the different publishers. Well, there was the restrictions. That was one part of it, but you know, that I think really that's also what helped create what would eventually go on to become weird shovelware games. But the other thing, too, is the other problem I think Nintendo had that eventually every gaming system would always have is that they had the big, ugly issue of like, well, um, what game are we making now? How about a game about Uncle Fester? We're going to call it <laughs> Fester's Quest because people love the Adams Family, right? Yeah. Uh, wait, what? Uh, okay. You know, they, there was just weird, everything just started getting licensed. And like, well, can we make a game out of it? We can? All right, there we go. It's now a game. And Yeah, but that happens when other industries are like, oh, we can make money off of this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's always that weird. Like, it's it's weird because it almost feels like at near the like last part of Nintendo's run, that's when they realized the nostalgia factor. Like, right. you know, people know about this, so if this franchise, screw it. I mean... Well, you had what the Noid had a game on the NES. Yep, was it NES? Uh, the Seven Up Dot had a game on the Seven NES. Seven Up Dot had a game. Well, it's even weirder when you look at the other tie-ins that were absolutely nothing to do with, like going back to the Goonies two sort of thing. Yeah. You had Goonies two, but like the game Top Gun had nothing to do with the game and movie nope. Top Gun nope. that came out. Basically, you were just playing a jet fighter simulator that just happened to have the beginning music, like opening music of Top Gun, <laughs> not Danger Zone. Right. That wasn't in there, but but yeah, that's that's you know about the ten year. I'll, I don't know. Would it be ten years? I would say that the Nintendo's official lifespan started around eighty five, and I'd say officially yeah, died ninety five, but... about ninety one, ninety two. Yeah, about that. Well, let's see. So the Super Nintendo, Super Nintendo came, came out, and then they redesigned the NES to the top slot loading one. But that didn't, and there was the new controller, right? The controller was, looked a little bit like the Super Nintendo controller. Yeah, had the, the, like the bone shape to it. There, there really wasn't any titles of no coming out for that either. That we're gonna. No, nothing that I can think of. All right. Well, I think we've exhausted everything we can say about uh, Nintendo. Uh, it's it's one of those things you look back and it's an amazing view, you know, when you think about how impactful one thing is, but also just how much everything has evolved and changed so dramatically as time has gone on. So, um, I'd like to thank Steve here for talking Nintendo with me for well over an hour and everything. I'd like to state that hopefully my next episode I can get out within the next couple of weeks and get this into a much more timely thing. 
I'd like to thank all of you that have subscribed or any of you done feedback. And by all means, follow my Facebook page, uh, follow my Twitter page, you know, do what you can guys. Uh, I'd like to keep doing this. I don't care. It's not about for me. This isn't about making money or anything yet. If I do, that would kind of be a nice thing, but <laughs> well, let's, let's be honest here. You know, I mean, I, I, I see how many people listen to this. So I, I recognize, you know, for anybody to spend an hour of their time listening to this, I am always greatly appreciative. So, so signing out for the burning bridges podcast with Mike Spriegel. This is Mike Spriegel and I will talk to you guys later.